Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that the meditation, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be always pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, my parents were missionaries and they were from what used to be called a faith-based mission. That meant that the mission didn't pay them a salary. They had to raise the money to live on for uh, themselves. But the thing was they weren't ever meant to ask anyone for money. They would go to churches, tell people about their ministry and pray that God would provide for them. I know that sometimes things were tight, but I have to say we were never in need. For many people in our world, just putting food on the table each day is a huge struggle. And if your church is anything like mine, some of you will be facing illness, mental health, financial troubles, And just getting through the day for some of you will be a challenge. So how are we to face the uncertainty, the fragility of life? It's a question that all of us, whatever your religious persuasion, face. Well, today we are looking at the fourth and fifth uh, requests in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That first one is perhaps the easiest prayer for us to pray. And the second is maybe the hardest. In these two prayers, we ask God to provide for our needs, great and small, material and spiritual. In part one, will consider, give us today our daily bread. And funnily enough, part two, forgive us our sins. So let's get into it. Part one, give us today our daily bread. Let's kind of slow down and consider each part of this request. Give us. These words remind us that God is our provider. We often come to prayer full of fear and worry, but the The first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer lift our eyes off ourselves and focus them on God, his greatness and glory, his plans and purposes. He's the source of all good. He loves us and takes care of us. He will provide us with what we need. And so Jesus can say, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, your body, what you wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well, be given to you. So much of our world runs on the assumption that resources are scarce and so you have to compete to survive. But God owns all the riches of heaven and earth and we live by his generous hand. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, says the psalmist. 
The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he promises he will provide. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. This is true even in prosperity. Deuteronomy 8 warns us that the danger of wealth is that you'll become proud and forget God. Moses says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. The prayer, give us today our daily bread, not only asks God to provide, it also reminds us to give thanks to God for what he has provided and acknowledge him as the one who provides all that we need and more. So give us today our daily bread. This phrase, of course, speaks of putting food on the table, but its meaning is wider. The 16th century theologian John Calvin writes that with this petition, we ask God for all that our bodies need. Not only food and clothing, he says, but also everything God perceives to be beneficial to us, that we may eat our daily bread in peace. On the other hand, this prayer is explicitly not for all we want. The phrase, as we heard, daily bread, comes from Proverbs chapter 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So this prayer is a prayer for contentment. The words daily bread, Calvin says, are a bridle against our uncontrolled desire for fleeting things like pleasure, ostentation, other excesses that abundance can feed. Jesus tells us to ask in this prayer only what is sufficient for our, day, our needs from day to day. And we trust that as Calvin says, as our heavenly father nourishes us today, he will not fail us tomorrow. Give us today our daily bread, guards against greed. It reminds us to ask not for what we want, but for what we need. Well, so far we've been thinking about God's provision for me as an individual, or perhaps my family too. But the words give us and teach, uh, sorry, give us today our daily bread, teach us that this prayer is not just about my need, but it is also about my neighbor's need. We can ask the question, what is needed for my neighbor's daily bread? Martin Luther, another 16th century theologian, sees this petition as a prayer for a just and prosperous society. To pray, give us our daily bread, is to pray for the needs of all people to be met. 
It's to pray against, as he, uh, he says, wanton exploitation in business, trade and labour, which crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. We thank God for his provision for us and for many through our governments. But we also pray for those around the world who are facing dire need. We pray for their governments. We pray for aid agencies. We pray for peace, for justice, for generosity, for the poor in our own neighbourhoods. And as we pray not only for our own, but also for our neighbour's daily bread, we may find that God moves us to be the answer to that prayer. As we have received from God's generous hand, so he calls us to be generous and to be willing to share. In 2 Corinthians, Paul urges the Christians in Corinth to give to the starving church in Jerusalem. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. It was a beautiful thing last year to see how Wellspring Anglican Church down in Sandy Bay ran the Show Hope campaign to, sh- uh, to care for students from the subcontinent who were stranded in Hobart, who'd lost their jobs, had little or no financial support from their governments or back home. At their peak, uh, Show Hope was feeding over 800 students a week. There's lots of other ways that we can uh, be the way God provides for others' needs. It may be financially, maybe a home-cooked meal, and maybe a phone call, maybe volunteering. It was great to hear last week you guys uh, doing that uh, gardening down at, uh, where was it, Blackman's Bay Primary. As you pray this prayer, ask that God helps you to see the needs around you and what you can do to meet those. I confess I don't quite have the same faith that my parents had. I'm very grateful that the church pays me a stipend. But I have seen God provide for my church, St George's, in people, in resources, and in his timing. In late 2018, we took a huge step of faith and signed a contract to start work on restoring the stonework in our church. We'd received up to that time $600,000 in grants, but our estimated costs were $2.2 million. And then just before Christmas that year, about a month later, our local MP, Andrew Wilkie, told us that he had at last, after years of asking, secured $1.6 million in federal funding for the project. It was a huge answer to prayer. I can't tell you how relieved my parish council was about that. God will provide for you too. Maybe not how you expect or how you want, 
but he will provide. So today, why don't you come to him with all your needs and your worries and ask him, give us today our daily bread. Well, part two, forgive us our sins. When I was a teenager, I remember seeing my mum come in uh, upset one day. I asked her, what's wrong? And she said, I've just heard that our friend Graham and his two boys were killed. It was a horrible story. Graham Staines was a missionary in India who'd given his life to care for people with leprosy. One night he was visiting a village and had gone to sleep in his Jeep with his two boys who were six and ten. A mob stirred up by Hindu extremists surrounded the Jeep and set it on fire. Graham and his sons perished. The baseless reason for this horrific action was that the Stains were supposedly forcing people to convert to Christianity, but of course that wasn't true. But what was incredible was that the very next day when Graham's wife Gladys was interviewed, she forgave those who were responsible for the death of her husband and her two sons. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, this is perhaps the most emotionally charged. In our culture today, we rightly focus on victims. And the idea of forgiveness can seem outrageous. We don't want forgiveness. We want justice. Forgiveness can seem immoral. Doesn't forgiveness excuse people for doing wicked things? I'm not going to answer every question, but I hope that I can offer some wisdom from God's word as we grapple with forgiveness. The stain story makes us feel the weight of it. And it raises the question for us, how could she do it? Extraordinary. As a pastor, I've found again and again that when forgiveness is touched on in a sermon, someone wants to talk to me afterwards. And what spills out is a story of a very grievous wound. I know I'm meant to forgive, but I don't think I can. Anyone who thinks forgiveness is a simple matter has not had something serious to forgive or has not sat with someone who does. And yet Gladys's forgiveness breathes life and hope in the wreckage of pain and despair. One of the sessions that I most enjoy when I do marriage preparation with couples is the session on giving and receiving forgiveness. I tell them that this is the most powerful tool in their belt. In the session, we break down what forgiveness involves. It's not saying that everything is fine. On the contrary, forgiveness names what was done as 
wrong. It names how this has wounded me and how I feel as a result. And in doing so, it lays down the expectation that the guilty party will not do the same thing again. In this sense, forgiveness is actually a form of judgment because it exposes and condemns the wrong as wrong. But forgiveness does not stop there. Forgiveness says, I will let go of my right to get even. I'll let go of my feelings of anger and bitterness and resentment toward you. I'll not demand that you have to work to get back into my good books. I'll extend my hand for relationship. Of course, for a relationship to work, forgiveness must be met with change in the guilty party. The old-fashioned Christian terms of confession and repentance still capture this best. When I confess, I take responsibility for what I have done. I acknowledge that it was wrong. I acknowledge the hurt that I have caused. I say I'm sorry. In repentance, I commit to change, to not do that same thing again. And only when I've confessed and repented can I ask for forgiveness. And I can only ask. I can't demand forgiveness. Forgiveness, you see, is always a gift. I receive it by faith. It doesn't work with the accountant's ledger weighing our good and bad deeds. It's a gift when we forgive others. It's a gift when God forgives us. And where that hand of forgiveness is met with the hand of repentance, there you get the embrace of reconciliation. Without either hand, the circle isn't joined. The hand of forgiveness can be refused. The hand of repentance can be met with a cold heart. I always ask couples, where does the pain of the wound go in forgiveness? See, our desire for justice can all too easily spill over into revenge, where we revisit the pain done to us back on the one who did the wrong, and of course, a bit with a bit of interest. But when you forgive, you refuse to let evil have this second victory. Instead, you bear the pain. And you do so for the sake of the other person. To open the possibility for the relationship to heal. 
This, of course, is the very great challenge of forgiveness. The one who forgives bears the cost of forgiveness. So where on earth do we find resources to do that? Well, at this point, I tell couples that this is the secret power of the Christian faith. Because at the centre of the Christian faith stands the cross of Christ. In Christ's suffering and death, we see God himself absorbing the pain of our wrongs against him. In the cross, we see the cost of our forgiveness. Like all forgiveness, the cross exposes the wrong that we have done and names us as guilty. Oh yes, in your honest moments, you know you've done things that you're ashamed of. But Jesus' diagnosis is that our actions are symptoms of a diseased heart. It's out of our hearts that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. It all comes out of in here. The essence of the cross is the exchange. Christ dies for us in our place that we might be forgiven. And that's because the essence of our problem is an exchange that we seek to take the place of God. It's the I in sin. It's like the servant in Jesus' parable who didn't see the depth of the king's generosity and instead sought to play the tyrant over his fellow servant. We may not feel the seriousness of our sin, but the agony of the cross shows just how much pain our sin causes God. And Jesus willingly bore that cost of our forgiveness because he loves us. He loves you. Really, you. He loves you and would not be separated from you. Each time we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, it's an opportunity for us to receive God's forgiveness. When you've been deeply wounded, it can feel like it is impossible to forgive. Does God only forgive us if we forgive others? No, no. We don't earn his forgiveness by our forgiving others. In Romans, Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. God's forgiveness, you see, comes before and is deeper and wider than all our halting attempts at forgiveness. His forgiveness is an infinite well that we can draw on when we struggle to forgive others. We're called to forgive only because God has forgiven us. And we pray this prayer because we need God's help to forgive. Of ourselves, we don't have the spiritual resources to forgive others who wound us deeply. Forgiveness is always a gift, something we learn. Sometimes it can take time, even years. It's okay. We need Christ to cradle us to his breast and tend our wounded soul. Sometimes we need God to ask God for grace to forgive others as he forgives us. Theologian Miroslav Volf writes, All our forgiving is inescapably incomplete. And that is why it is so crucial to see our forgiving not simply as our own act, but as a participation in God's forgiving. Our forgiving is faulty. God's is faultless. Our forgiving is provisional. God's is final. We forgive tenuously and tentatively. God forgives unhesitatingly and definitively. Our forgiveness is only possible as an echo of God's forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God to meet our needs, for him to give us our daily bread. Forgiveness is my greatest need and your greatest need. Jesus' hands are outstretched to forgive you. The question is, how would you respond to his forgiveness? We've seen the way to respond to forgiveness, haven't we? Confession and repentance. Saying sorry for trying to be your own master. Committing to follow Christ as your king. Asking for him to forgive you. And as you grasp his hand of forgiveness in faith, he will enfold you in his reconciling embrace and give you power by his Holy Spirit to forgive others even as he's forgiven you. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are more ready to give than we are to ask. And you can do more than we can ask and imagine. 
So this day we pray that we would have confidence to ask you, give us today our daily bread. We thank you for Jesus' death for us and the infinite well of forgiveness there is on offer. Please forgive us for our sins. For Jesus' sake, and give us grace by your Holy Spirit to forgive others. We ask this through Christ, our risen King. Amen.